Hello, welcome to Songs in the Key of, a podcast about songs. These might be old songs, new songs or middle-aged songs, anything that takes my fancy really. Sometimes these shows will be themed around an idea, a person, a genre or some other concept. Other times they will simply reflect my latest obsessions, my new favourite bands, those songs I can't get out of my head. And sometimes they will be songs other people can't get out of their heads. This episode is one of those times. This time round it's the turn of Moira Mahaffey, local discophile of this particular parish who, as you'll hear, can always be relied upon to recommend some excellent tunes and some equally excellent insight into them. On this episode you'll hear her pick 10 songs that have been living rent free in her brain of late and you'll hear the occasional chipping in from her husband Stuart whose own songs in the key of episode will be coming this way very soon. So let's start with 10 songs in the key of Moira Mahaffey. So uh, with me now is uh, Moira and Stuart, or are Moira and Stuart, Um, and we're going to go with Moira's list first, and so the first song that you've chosen, Moira, is The Bargain Store by Dolly Parton. Yes, I was trying to think of things that I have sort of started listening to recently, but then including also some things that I've never not listened to, things I've listened to my whole life. And Dolly Parton is probably one of the most consistently listened to people uh, yeah. across that listening lifetime. So um, I grew up in a household, uh, rather stereotypically in Northern Ireland, uh, full of country and Western music. <laughs> um, and uh, Dolly Parton was someone who was always present musically throughout my uh, sort of early years of adolescence. And it seems to have taken a lot of people until quite recently to sort of discover her in a very respectful way and kind of figure out quite what a cultural phenomenon she is. And I think we probably went through a phase in the 80s with people like Kenny Everett and those kind of shows that were lampooning her very much on the grounds of her appearance. Mm. Um, And those people who just didn't really get her. And I think now we've come around to a point where she's duly receiving the kind of respect that she deserves as, Mm. I guess, a songwriter first and foremost, but as a kind of very iconic figure of the sort of late 20th and, and 21st century as well. Mm. Um, so uh, she writes in her autobiography, uh, Song Teller, about how she can't not write songs. So people often say to her, you know, how do you do it? She says, well, I, I, I couldn't not write songs. They're around me, it's all the time. She's been in this ever since she was, I think she's about eight years old when she writes her first one. Yeah. And hundreds of them obviously kind of in the bank. Um, And I think I've always really admired her because she's very good at constantly sort of reinventing herself and every time that perhaps she is musically not in favour or is not the most popular sound at that time, she finds a new way to cross over and deliver something else. And I think she's been through the kind of, uh, you know, she's a a Oscar-nominated soundtrack writer, uh, obviously Mm -hmm. winner of Grammys and Country Music Awards. But then she will cross over and do something that's disco. She will then do something that's not probably one of the most foremost kind of bluegrass players as well. So she's kind of reinvented that and gone back to her roots and find those things. So I've always really admired that about her. Um, A phenomenally astute businesswoman. Mm. Um, I think probably the biggest indicator of this is when Elvis was desperate to record I Will Always Love You. 
and she's always said she would have loved to have heard him and his version but in order for him to do that colonel parker was expecting her to just hand over the rights and hand over all the money and income that came from that song and she said no and right. so she always speaks with regret that she didn't get to hear that but i think that says so much for the business sense that's there and her ability to navigate through that very male dominated music industry um, and completely stay true to herself. Mm. Um, she's, I think, uh, really drawing attention uh, for philanthropy recently as well. So she has invested a lot of her earnings into her own community, into international communities, funding literacy programmes, providing books for people, and pretty famously last year, donating lots of money into vaccine research. Yeah. Um, putting herself out there, being shown, having her vaccine and ripping yeah. off Julie and turning it into as long as she did it. Um, yeah. So she the, the hugest respect for as a, a kind of a woman who has really broken lots of sort of boundaries and, and defied a lot of expectations of her, I guess, for, for years, really. Mm. Yeah, she, she does come across as a very complete and completely, yeah, altogether human being that, yeah, yeah you've got to have a lot of respect for. Yeah. And even if you don't necessarily like country and Western, I think there is something about her that stretches beyond that and you, you can't help but like her. Why, yeah. why this song in particular out of all, all her um, uh, songs? Out of all her many songs, I really like this one. I think it might be slightly underplayed or not as well known as some of the, the more obvious hits. And certainly I don't think it's one that many people have, have covered, whereas a lot of her songs have had very famous cover versions. Mm. Um, I like this one because it shows a couple of things about her. It's her mastery of metaphor within songwriting so she's taken one idea and kind of runs with it but mm. everything about it is kind of logical makes sense yeah um, and it's the empathy that she shows so we're talking about someone who's been happily married to the same person for I think 50 years or more but yeah. she can put herself into the position of people who've been through so many different kinds of heartbreak that she hasn't been through but she can imagine their position and yeah. um, I really like this one as well because there's something that reflects her innocence almost about it the song itself was banned by a lot of radio stations in America. They refused to play it when it came out what? because the kind of metaphor that she's chosen where she's liking herself to a bargain store and saying she's got a heart that's been used, but she's now saying, I'm ready to move on. I'm ready for love again. So the bargain yeah. store is open, come inside, and people were beginning to interpret this as uh, something a lot racier <laughs> and much more of a double entendre than she really intended it to be. And so it didn't get played. But um, yeah. I think yeah, it, it just says everything about her. It's just... Um, it gives a, a lovely opportunity to hear that really natural, beautiful vibrato in her voice as well. It gives yeah. you a really of that too. So um, it's a fantastic song. Um, and I, I think something else that I think is really important about her is the way that she's also kind of embraced her gay following and her LGBT appeal. And she's never looked down on the drag queens who want to dress up as Dolly Parton. She has always kind of welcomed everybody to be her fan and she's not put up any of those boundaries herself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's just a great example of her songwriting. It's it's kind of wry and it's clever. Mm. Um, above all, it's it's empathetic and uh, yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, because I, I was I was listening to it earlier on at work, you know, pottering around doing worky type things, and I, I, I've heard this song hundreds of times before, being dragged up listening to Radio Two or whatever, and um, I did have to sort of stop and go, this is really really quite a good song here yeah <laughs> it need we, we need to have a moment to appreciate this yeah. so um yeah let's let's take a moment to to appreciate it now 
My life is likened to a bargain store And I may have just what you're looking for If you don't mind the fact that all the merchandise is used But with a little mending it could be as good as new Why you take for instance this old broken heart If you will just replace the missing parts You would be surprised to find how good it really is Take it and you never will be sorry that you did The bargain store is open, come inside was a bit of a, a snippet of the bargain store by Dolly Parton um you're saying more about sort of growing up listening to that it, uh, the next song that's on the list is culture clubs time clocks of the mind so is that um I'm guessing you'd have grown up listening to that that would be yeah. a song from your youth yeah calculating I think uh, Boy George was probably the first person that I ever fell madly in love with as a, a very, very young girl. <laughs> um, and I really like this song of theirs. I think they've got ones which are, are probably better known uh, to people who didn't grow up with Culture Club in the background. Um, yeah. And I think Karma Chameleon is almost one of those songs that's become bigger than the band. Yeah. Um, so widely known and so well played. But I really like this one better. Um, it's got parenthesis in the title of it. And I do like a song that will put something in brackets. Um, apart from obviously you've got it brackets the right stuff by new kids in the block which is uh, you know the big section <laughs> to rule on that um I, I like the production on this I think it's around about 1982 and it could have gone more horribly wrong and it mm. does have a sax solo on it which I think was hard to avoid at that particular time but I think it the production on it it does justice to Boy George's vocals and the musicianship of the rest of the band aren't kind of lost within that, which there, there may have been in that tendency to overstate and 80s production. Yeah. Um, it's on here, not that I necessarily listen to Culture Club an awful lot anymore, but I do listen to Boy George as a sort of talker. And he's one of my very favourite people to hear doing interviews, anything spoken word. Um, he is fantastically articulate. He's always interesting. Uh, of course, I guess sometimes controversial, but he hugely intelligent and erudite. Um, and so someone whose voice I really like to hear and whose views I really like to hear and things as well. Mm. Um, I think we sort of look back a little while at some YouTube footage where he's being interviewed by Terry Wogan. So yeah. in the 80s, height of his power. And he's had just having incredibly open discussions, not necessarily about sexuality. There was a lot that was unspoken and unsaid about that, but about gender identity and how you dress and why you express yourself through the way that you dress mm. um, and fluidity and there's a lot of things which I think now are much more openly talked about that he was putting right out there on yeah. forums like the show um, which I think people forget what a sort of huge audience that used to reach um, like way ahead of his time way before other people were kind of ready to do that and I think I've always admired him as someone who was never really prepared to compromise his mm -hmm. idea of who he was. So he would go out 
going to buy, I think it was Eltham, isn't it, that he grows up dressing however he wanted, fully expecting that he was going to get beaten up if he went like that, but not prepared to not go out like that, to just to yeah. be himself. Um, and I think what's also pretty incredible about that is the success that they had in America at that point. So they go out there in the 80s and they're absolutely huge. And that's a time of really quite entrenched, almost institutionalised homophobia from mm. the you know, the attitude of, of the political parties there. And to have taken what he always talks about, you know, we gave them a good old dose of English eccentricity. We went out there and we showed them something about how to be a pop star. Yeah. So I think as a pop star, um, he is hugely important. Um, I think even down to the fact, if you look at the way that a lot of the young ladies, and perhaps young gentlemen of Medway these days, draw their eyebrows on, and look at Boy George in the 80s, and those are his eyebrows. He's inspired <laughs> a cult of eyebrow adornment. Um, I think he has also done uh, recently in sort of lockdown, he did a, an interview with one of um, Louis Theroux's podcasts of Grinded with Louis Theroux. Okay, yeah. And um, I really enjoyed listening to that and just sort of hearing his ideas. Um, and I think he is sometimes kind of underrated as a vocalist as well. And I do really like the sound of his speaking voice, but I really enjoy him as a pop star. I think that's what a pop star should be doing. They should be out there being that little bit different mm. um, and just giving us personality as well as, as that kind of product as well. So just now we were talking about your love of a parenthesis and yeah. the next song on our list has possibly the best parenthesis of all time ever, ever, ever. Uh, Ladies for Babies, Goats for Love by uh, Nadine Shah from, I think it's from her latest album, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, is yeah. So um, tell me about that song. Why is that on your list? I think the song title in itself is, is just absolutely brilliant. Um, I listen to the radio an awful lot, so uh, whilst I'm working or whilst I'm driving. Um, mm. And I kind of picked this up from Six Music, having it in yeah. quite heavy rotation, and it became a real sort of radio earworm that was staying with me. Um, once again, she's also someone who's a fantastic interviewee. She's very, very engaging. She's very open. Mm. And uh, she does talk a lot about her kind of process of songwriting and why she chose certain topics or, or why she chose certain lyrics. And uh, she talks about how she took this title from an artwork that her brother had made, which shows this man who is embracing a goat. And so at one level, this is <laughs> the song where this man has, has a wife or a partner, but has a mistress who just happens to be a goat. Now, I'm not sure whether we are meant to take that at that kind of literal level, but this is a song about uh, a man sort of voicing 
his expectations of, of the wife or partner and the different way in which he regards his mistress who may or may not be a goat literally. yeah and it's it's kind of playful but it is addressing this idea of kind of preconceptions of women's rules and, and how women should behave and act yeah um i really love the fact that her authentic regional accent comes through in the recordings as well I really yeah. like to hear that song and I think that's true for one of the ones I'm going to mention later on as well. It's just, yeah. that is refreshing. Yeah. Um, it's also really quite admirable because she's such, um, she's really vociferously spoken out and contributed to the debate about artist rights and, and revenues from streaming. So she's been part of kind of the cultural committees who have begun to investigate this, uh, whatever yeah. progress they're making on that. So again, I think we've got just a sort of a playful and intelligent and highly entertaining, you know, female singer-songwriter here. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the second that she was, was she nominated Mercury Prize for the first one, this is the second album. Um, yeah. But I think there's sort of every indication that she'll go from strength to strength on this, really. Who wants this lady to be a lady? To careless, be airless All he wants in fairness Is a baby, a little baby Too careful, be therefore But careful, she could turn out late And if a lady to be a lady Then you play the daddy And take them to caddy And give her babies Those little tamies Too careful, stay indoors But careful, they could turn out like Babies for babies and goats for So that was uh, Ladies for Babies, Goats for Love. You've got to give the full title there, definitely. Um, we, we've talked about you, you growing up with country and western happening in the background. And here's a slightly different spin on the usual question. What was the second album you ever bought? Oh, I think it was a long time before I had a proper album that wasn't one of those either Top of the Pops compilations yeah. or uh, one of those Now That's What I Call Music things. So I think we got right. an awful lot of those. Um, with slight horror today, we what, why did we discover Black Lace again today? I vividly remember <laughs> having Black Lace's Party Party and Party Party Volume 2 on cassette. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> um, That's quite something. Yeah, uh, really. Uh, so there was a lot of, of things that were bought for you at a very young age. Um, so I can't, I'm not entirely sure when I... I mean, there used to be one of those record shops in a sort of shopping centre down the road for us where the people who ran it had like no idea about records. So they would just have bins full of sort of vinyl things that they'd ended up with. Yeah. Plus all the CD, all the stuff like now, that's what I call music and all that. Yeah. Um, I can remember I've owned on vinyl ACDC's Back in Black for pretty much as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bought that quite early on and that has stayed with me and moved with me house to house. Um, 
trying to think what else would have been sort of very early autonomous purchases that I, I definitely went out of my way to get for myself and uh, not that. I don't know. Um, yeah, we would just kind of scrabble through all the places where you just find records dumped in baskets because nobody knew what they were worth or what to charge <laughs> for them. Especially at that point where they're trying to sort of phase out vinyl and, and get everyone to buy things in CDs. So certainly yeah. ACDs from there. I'm trying to think what else of some of the sort of oldest recordings I've got. I mean, I have got, got records of my parents that I kind of seconded to yeah. myself quite early on that I've always listened to. I think of those, the first ones I properly stole from them that they, yeah. they were never getting back were probably a month of man's greatest hits and an animal's greatest hits. And again, those yeah. are still things that kind of come out kitchen disco wise here. Yeah. Um, so are you a real vinyl person? You, is that like your preferred medium? It pretty much is, yeah. Um, so I obviously I grew up in Belfast, but came to go to university in England. So I left behind all of my vinyl there. It didn't come with me for those kind of four years of uni. Um, but my parents looked after it all and kept it for me. And then gradually, when it became clear that I wasn't going back there, I got my first job over here and was kind of settling in England. My dad would come and visit me. And every time he was on a plane, would bring as much vinyl as he could pack into his hand luggage and then he brought it over. And it took yeah. quite a while to get those drips and drabs. So it was really great to be reunited with all of that. But obviously yeah. then there was a big gap. That was all the things I'd bought up to the age of 18. Went yeah. to university without a record player, so everything was on CD. But yeah. then I've come back around to buying things on vinyl. Yeah. So I can't remember the last rarely buy anything on CD now. If it's an album I'm not going to listen to, I'll get it in vinyl. Yeah. Uh, which obviously isn't terribly portable, um, but it's <laughs> uh, satisfying and it, and it makes an occasion out of putting an album on with the intention of listening to it in its entirety. Yeah. If you turn it over halfway through, um, yeah. you know, you don't skip tracks and you don't ignore tracks when you've yeah. got that physical vinyl copy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that would tend to be the format as uh, well. Storage space becomes a slight issue, but I would say that's <laughs> the because you're a, a member of a, a local record club, aren't you? Yeah. I suppose that's not been in action much of late. It hasn't been, no. We, yeah. we had a few kind of online ones, which became sort of just swapping YouTube clips. Um, hopefully we'll get that going again, because mm. it was just a fantastic thing. It's just such a, a broad range of different genres of music. Um, a couple of them where we would sort of choose a theme, and then the way that people interpret that theme is so completely different as well, whether it's from a song title, the artist, just something that that song reminds them of that kind of belongs to that theme. Mm. Um, and it's been a, a fantastic way to get to know people um, and to sort of, it's quite a, a uniquely bonding experience as mm. well. It was always quite a small group of people who would meet. I think it really was the foundation of some good friendships and some uh, kind of lasting friendships there as well. So I really hope that that does yeah so would you sit and listen to a whole a whole album then or would it have just been a selected at record track? club yeah the record um, club yeah record club is very much one track maybe two if you're lucky yeah so yeah uh, people would come along take it in turns in the order that you arrive so whoever gets their first gets their sort of first dibs on there but yeah, yeah. playing a track at a time yeah um, i think very occasionally someone would request a b-side um, of something if they were particularly fond of it but yeah mostly just taking a turn about to play a song okay, yeah. uh, and a nice just a sort of element of of storytelling with it like people who could explain 
in depth why they've chosen something or what it means to them or just put a record on and say I hope you enjoy this so it's that yeah giving as, as much of yourself to it as you want to yeah yeah is there any any record in particular that someone else brought along and you ended up completely head over heels in love with it it's, it's really interesting what you know it, it, things like tv themes that some, mean something to somebody but you've never heard before we've all sat and listened to um i took down a record of the soundtrack to the railway children it's one of my yeah. favorite films and we all sat around at the end of the evening and just kind of listened to it because it had a lot of sort of extracts of the dialogue from the film and that kind of i mean there's quite a, a wide range of ages that were coming along to the record club but that was a, that was something that everyone had in common that everyone yeah had love for that yeah. film and so hearing the songs was very evocative and we'd all oh. seen them at different points in our lifetime you know yeah. Oh, the Diagram Brothers. That was another one. Yeah. Diagram Brothers. That was a good um, one. Andy Diagram from the band James, the trumpet player, right. was previously in a band called the Diagram Brothers, um, who were and are um, sort of friends with Kevin Younger, who seems to know everybody. And um, uh, I'd never actually, I knew uh, Andy Diagram had been in a band called the Diagram Brothers through reading various of Stuart McConey's books, including yeah. his book about James folklore the history of james um but i'd never actually heard the diagram brothers so okay that was something that yeah. occurred yeah so it's been <laughs> nice just, yeah, things you'd forgotten about that you had heard things you've never heard before yeah um things that are you know, mean, meaningful to somebody and sharing and their reasons for why it's meaningful so it's just a really lovely experience oh good let's get back to the um the list of your your songs for for the podcast and your uh, your next choice is behave myself by she drew the gun um my knowledge of she drew the gun mainly revolved around um the cover of the frank zappa song um trouble uh, trouble every day but um oh they're angry she's angry <laughs> I am the rage of all women condensed to the point of explosion. I'm the silence of violation finally broken. I'm the joke behind the eloquent feminist slogan, and I will not behave myself. Well, there you go. Yes. <laughs> tell, tell me more about She Drew the Gun. She Drew the Gun. Um, she's, she's really very overtly political, as you've alluded to it. Um, pushing quite a strong socialist agenda and definitely a feminist agenda. So I think she, um, she, sorry, Louisa Roach is the, the main, she mostly is, she drew the gun with a, a sort yeah. of backing band support. Um, but in a very bewitchingly melodic way. So I think there are songs out there which are so catchy that she's produced. You'll find yourself singing along, humming along, then you look at the lyrical content and you realise that actually she's, she's really putting something quite polemical out there or something that's mm. very serious to her. Yeah. Um, so it's a kind of, I guess, it's a sort of psych pop kind of vibe uh, to the music. Um, and it, um, she's been produced and supported by members of the Choral, by James Skelly from the Choral, and she's from the Whirl. Um, okay. And I think there was a danger of kind of being lumped in and associated with what could be quite a nice, reasonably fair, poppy scene there. Um, mm. And so although there's that influence and that's maybe what people see as a kind of typically modern Liverpool sound uh, obviously there is a kind of agenda behind that which is going a bit further than a lot of people so she um, has a lot of songs here which are about kind of injustice she's writing about uh, economic injustice and uh, talking about food banks in these songs so it's it's completely bang up to date yeah and this is absolutely 
a feminist anthem that she's putting out there with this beguiling sort of hooky melody behind it there as well. Um, mm. And I sometimes feel a little bit conflicted about politics and pop music. Sometimes you just want pop music to be pop music and pop stars to be pop stars. I don't really want Mick Jagger to influence my politics. I just want them to be Mick Jagger, you know. Um, and obviously the worst extreme of that is to be Bono. Um, and nobody, <laughs> nobody wants that really, do they? But there is clearly a place to raise kind of political issues and still be a, a pop musician. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it is important that we have feminist voices out there at the minute. We're um, even working with sort of young people. We are focusing on addressing issues about the way young girls are treated, about harassment, uh, peer-on-peer abuse. Yeah. There's a, a whole sort of investigation and culture that's going into um, how girls are being harassed online, again, by their peers or getting into situations uh, which are way over their heads at such a young age these days. And then we've had recently sort of the emergence of awareness about this incel uh, kind of online community. And mm. it, clearly the work still needs to be done to... Yeah, because what happened in... Plymouth a yeah. few weeks back so, was um, so, wasn't it? Yeah, so clearly issues do need to be talked about and inequalities surrounding gender um, need to be raised uh, and possibly pop music is the way to do that. Um, mm. So yes, she, she is angry, one might say rightly so, about various things which are going on in the world at the minute, but I also think that it's still very listenable. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. the rage of all women condensed to the point of explosion I'm the silence of violation finally broken I am the joke behind the eloquent feminist slogan and I will not behave myself I am the cheap labor and the overpriced beauty promotion I'm the time bomb of pathological consumption approaching I'm the child of mother earth and the dirt in her ocean and I will not After Behave Myself by She Drew the Gun, we're now going over to The Fixer by The Bug Club, which, uh, so it was on it was on Stuart's list and now it's on Moira's list. What was going on? Yeah, it was, it's one that we both like. So uh, one of us had to get custody and she <laughs> had a lot of songs on his list, so he had one to spare for me. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, and it's quite a sort of new acquisition. Again, it's a radio earworm. It's, it's one that I just kept hearing and... Um, don't know much beyond what basic information about the band. There are three of them. Mm. They're from Wales. It's a very frenetic kind of garage poppy kind of thing. It just mm. seems to be full of energy, which suggests that they're probably disarmingly young people, although not as disarmingly young as, as some of the other people I'm going to talk about. Um, just seems to be good fun. I don't know. Anything else you would add? What, what has caught your ear about them? I, I like the energy of and the, the male-female vocal dynamic. Without, yeah. without the need for 
harmonization it has a slightly bratty feel to right. their um utterances there's um the first couple of singles were much more uh almost tongue-in-cheek um vocal wise yeah and then leading into these blistering guitar solos really with yeah in a kind of the kind of guitar solos you you don't you, the sort of thing my dad said oh you don't hear that any, every day anymore <laughs> sort of thing that was you know very um 70s psych rock mm. blistery fuzzy guitar solos yeah um over what feels like a kind of lo-fi punky record the way you wouldn't expect a noodly guitar solo at all um, yeah and I, I liked that kind of juxtapositioning um mm. Yeah, I think they'd be fantastic to see live. I'd really like to yeah. keep an eye out. We're going to be doing some gigs and see how that works out. Um, yeah. And that balance between the vocals and the guitars in the, that live situation. I imagine it would be good fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I put it on and immediately I felt like it was in a, in a familiar place, even though it was a new song. It's like, ah, mm-hmm. I, I can cope with this. This, this is, <laughs> this feels like home. This is good. The record that reminds me of the fact that I'm not dead Skip all the fast ones while we sit in the bathroom reading Moby Dick Well if the fixer can't picture the medicine will The medicine will The medicine will Oh if the fixer can't picture the medicine will The medicine will The medicine will Nibble the corner of your brown toast with Now the next song, I had uh, I had the pleasure of seeing uh, Duke Special at uh, the Witchwood Festival in Cheltenham, on Cheltenham Racecourse about ten years ago, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, but but you know him, so you, so you trump me. So anyway, we're talking about <laughs> uh, Wonder Darling of the Jockey Club by Duke Special. Um, so yeah. Duke Special is a uh, Northern Ireland native. Um, yeah. So uh, tell me more about him and uh, this song and and everything else we need to know about the, the situation. Yeah, so he is a, a Belfast born and based singer songwriter. Um, Duke Special isn't his real name. You'd be unsurprised to know. Um, <laughs> he's he's an his earl. His real name or, is. Uh, sorry. He's an earl. He's or... uh, his real name is Peter Wilson, and mm-hmm. uh, many many years ago, I used to go to church with him. Which is okay. often the basis of how people from Northern Ireland do know each other if they're not, if they're not cousins, and sometimes they are both. Um, so uh, yes, he spent years trying to become a pop star and kind of affecting a very bog standard mid-Atlantic accent. Uh, and he's a very talented performer um, and a great voice, but it wasn't his authentic voice. And eventually, mm-hmm. I think one of his friends told him possibly to either wise up or to catch himself on and said, you've you just got to use your own voice. Why are you pretending to be someone that you're not? Um, and encouraged him to start singing with his authentic Belfast voice coming through. Yeah. And since he has done that, uh, I think everything has kind of changed. And he is very, very imaginative, very creative. 
these that song itself is obviously a sort of ragtime um number it's from a three cd concept album this is not negative this term concept album in this case although i know it can be so there's kind of three albums or mini albums within this and this one's taken from one called the silent word of hector man which is a song inspired by a novel a novel by uh, paul oster called the book of illusions um he's got a lot of sort of well-known collaborators on these recordings as well so you've got neil hannon from the divine comedy um ed harcourt and i think steve albini has produced him as well so um he perhaps has got maybe a bit of a cult following i think he's known in some circles i don't think he's hugely widely known um mm. uh, the other two kind of albums or mini albums that are with this uh, the one that, that comes from is a recording of his reimagination of mother courage and her children the virtual brecht kind of opera and then the final one is an ep of songs about huckleberry finn so within that you've got just the range of things that he's kind of interested in um you've got obviously someone who's very literary and um sort of accesses lots of kind of high and low culture and synthesizes them i suppose into his own productions and his own recordings mm. um i think why i like to go back to listening to him is that it does remind me of my hometown obviously and um I think when I was growing up in Belfast, people underestimated just what a hub of kind of creativity it was. Mm. Um, obviously, people who were in other parts of the UK only got to hear very negative things about it. But for me, it was always a place where there was always live music. I think people thought bands wouldn't come and play in Belfast throughout the kind of 90s yeah. um, because they'd be too scared. It, it was ridiculous. People were there all the time. You know, there was such a vivid, lively music scene of local bands and of people coming over um, mm. to play mm. as part of an Irish tour. Of course, they'd be going on to Dublin, probably Cork and a couple of other places. But Belfast was definitely on the sort of touring scene of that kind of mid-90s period. Um, and we saw lots and lots of bands there. Yeah. And so he was kind of part of that scene. Um, not, not that sort of main scene, I suppose. He's always been a bit of an alternative kind of um, figure. Mm. Um, but yeah, it reminds me of the kind of creativity of my hometown. Um, it reminds me of the way that perhaps there are some very stereotypical ideas that people have about Ireland and about Northern Ireland in particular. And for a long time, culturally, um, Irish people have been kind of saddled with being, well, overtly stupid, I guess, was one of the things that people thought, or somehow ill-educated or ignorant. Mm. And mm. I think he utterly shows the nonsense that that is. This is someone else who, again, highly intelligent, um, highly literate in what he's doing and all of those influences that he's bringing to bear. An excellent yeah. entertainer. Yeah. And we saw, we were in, um, at home in Belfast once visiting my parents uh, when they were broadcasting the Proms and the Parks concerts and he was doing the main sort of bit from Belfast um, was other parts of the UK had their own things being broadcast um, and that was fantastic it was really your mum going is that Peter from <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he obviously didn't have dreadlocks and eyeliner when when we were at church together some time ago that's that's um, the main yeah. thing I remember about him is his amazing dreadlocks yeah yeah <laughs> quite it's really an incredible look um I've not seen him play live for a few years my sister and I went to see him at what's that rowing type pub in London that's on the river um, I can remember what it's called. We've been to lots of things there. Uh, half Moon? Yes, Half Moon and Putney. We saw that's the last place I saw him in where you've got to kind of run to get yourself a seat anywhere close to the stage or else kind of stand and, and perch on things yeah. around about that. Um, we saw him do um, 
not, not that's going back a few years now. Um, yeah, so it's just nice to uh, hear Northern Irish accents in music. You don't often get that. Uh, you've got Fergal Sharkey, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, a, an accent that's perhaps not out there in as the media as much as could be. Um, yeah. And I think Northern Ireland's had a, a pretty precarious couple of years, I guess, like the rest of us have over the last 18 months. There were some real concerns about the stability of the sort of situation at home. And, and as things began to open up again, I was sort of saying to my parents, you know, when do you want us to come and visit? And they were kind of a little bit cautious and advising us to hold back for a little while, yeah. um, just as they saw how this summer went off. And so uh, to kind of have someone to really celebrate uh, from the specific part of town that I'm from, um, to sort of revel in his creativity and his um, sort of imagination, I suppose, in terms of his music, it gives you that sense of optimism and it reminds you that hopefully there are good things on the horizon and hopefully that um, there is something to look forward to and some hope for uh, yeah. a city and a, and a society that's got just such a lot to offer. Mm. Yeah. The song, this one in particular, Wonder Darling of the Jockey Club, it's, um, it's got a real 1920s kind of, it's the uh, same sort of um, style as uh, Honey Pie by the Beatles, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Scott, that sort of, yeah. Scott Joplin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and brilliant. Yeah, he, yeah, he's, su he's such a, a literate, well-rounded... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, and it's uh, the other thing I like about this song is that it's a, a ballad in the proper sense of the world. There's a story here, and the story yeah. that goes from an obvious starting point to its conclusion, and you yeah. hear that all. And he doesn't seem to draw breath at all in this. It's it, it just yeah. uh, it sort of yeah. Oh, to go on Got lazy so day trips with my sweet aviatrix. That's that's. Yeah. I mean, that's just aviatrix. Isn't that a great word? I'm going to try and use aviatrix a lot more <laughs> than I have been. That is yeah. That's the first time I've ever heard that word. So following on from uh, Wonder Darling of the Jockey Club, uh, it's now O by the Linda Lindas. And I've just got some notes here. It's just full of self-loathing and a hint of um, the Sex Pistols guitar lick on Holidays in the Sun. Ah, our family holiday anthem. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me more yeah. about O. 
Oh, well, then this again is something that has been getting a lot of radio airplay um, recently. Um, so caught my ear that way. Um, when I first heard it, it obviously it's, it's kind of reminiscent of that sort of riot girl movement that there was perhaps in the, the mid nineties. Mm. Um, I had no idea how young they were when I heard that song for the first time and was really amazed to hear that. Mm. So their age range, their drummer is now 11, was 10 when they started record, recording. And the oldest member of that band is 16. Uh, so that is That's uh, just wrong. Isn't it? It's, it's, it's really exceptional. So they are, um, they've attracted the attention of bands. They're from, they're based in LA. And so they've um, really attracted supporters from uh, Bikini Kill, Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth. They've been kind of mentored and promoted by Kathleen Hanna. Um, It's really astonishing. They've um, contributed to lots of Netflix soundtracks. So I believe they were picked up again by Amy Puehler. They were asked to record um, for Moxie, her film, which I've not, I must confess, I've not actually seen. Um, So really phenomenal. yeah, they've got this song called Racist Sexist Boy, which is about the abuse that they have suffered already at this young age. And they just kind of put it out there. And this is the one that's attracted the attention of these, you know, really well regarded, um, I suppose it's fair enough to call members of Sonic Youth veterans, isn't it, now of the, mm. the music scene in America? Uh, so, yeah, just astonishing. Um, and it's, you've just got to hope that working in that industry at that age, that they are going to be kind of protected and supported and looks like the right people are there to mentor mm. them and to look after them and that they're not going to be exploited in any way. Um, but yeah, just prodigious talent. Um, again, lots of energy as you might expect. And uh, once again, perhaps quite a bit of anger about certain things which they are already experiencing. And I think, you know, in this context of, we've been talking about the necessity to still be looking at issues about how women and young women are being treated and, and what can we do to maybe address some of those issues? Um, well, yeah. maybe leave the young women that are going to sort everything out for us. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. When I see something, I wish I had shut up. And when I try to help, I always screw things up. The places that feel right, they never last too long. So following on from O, uh, I've now got 
uh, wildfires by salt. Um, so this is a, a response to uh, sort of uh, I, I, was it a response to um, the George Floyd killing? Yeah, I think it's yeah. a, a, a it's really a protest song about police brutality. Um, yeah, towards black people. Yeah, um, so. I think this was one that I picked up as a sort of earworm during lockdown. It seems to be getting played an awful lot on the radio, but it's still getting quite a lot of rotation. Mm. Um, it's really interesting because they're they're not a band with any kind of well, I don't know if they're even really a band. They're kind of a collective of musicians, and there's no public face. There's no person. That you okay. can associate these recordings with um, there's no obvious front person um, mm. they've released four albums in from between 2019 and 2020 so there is just you know the, a lot of um, things being produced by them and they yeah. just kind of appear there's no apparent promotion there is no fanfare about this just these things are released and um, I think this is a, a really fascinating song um, it's Obviously, once again, it's addressing a really serious issue and it obviously chimed with a lot of people at the point that this, the Black Lives Matters protests were spreading. Yeah. Um, and there's no doubt that it is overtly addressing that. But there is, I think, perhaps some room for ambiguity there. It's either saying that the protests themselves are a wildfire, that they are going to spread yeah. um, outwards from that um, event in America and it's going to kind of spread around the world. But there's also a notion behind that where kind of classically fire is seen as quite cleansing and that there is perhaps a potential to build something positive from those events and from the reaction that they've got and move forward from it. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think, yeah, you can kind of look at it in that way. So you can see that fire, the wildfires as the anger spreading, or perhaps here's an opportunity um, as so many people have had to reset parameters and their mindset over the last 18 months and they're coming back into uh, society, cultures that have changed and lifestyles that have changed for a lot of people. Perhaps there is an optimism here that there is some way to move forward. And Yeah, yeah just looking at the lyrics again, you've got like, um, we will never show fear, even in my eyes, I will always rise in wildfires. I've never been scared, even though my tears even through my tears, I will always care in wildfire. So yeah. it's it's not it's not all doom and gloom. It is like you say. It's um, there's a, there's an optimism somewhere in that, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a really beautiful vocal on this as well. To say it's impossible to get information about you know who these people are really, but uh, mm. yeah, I think it's it's really quite bewitching. And again, you can't identify a single person who's responsible for this. There's no image behind it. You're not fixated on the person of the singer, but you're drawn in by that voice. Yeah. And it addresses this really serious idea. But hopefully from that, we can draw something positive and we can draw some optimism as well.
this, we've got um, Real Thing by Bleach Lab, which is, a, in my, to my ears at least, a very, very Cocteau twinsy vibe. Yeah, it's wearing that, um, that sort of influence very, very heavily, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> that's in my notes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Glad we're all in agreement. Moving on. Yeah. So w- yeah. why this particular song? What, what's what's uh, attracted you to it? Well, Cocteau uh, Twins haven't put anything out for a while. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it's hugely influenced by those things, obviously. Um, so Cocteau Twins, some days you can hear in there very much. It's, I suppose, what is called dream pop. It's kind of quite ethereal. It's mm. got some nice dangly guitars on it, um, which we're very fond of in this house. Um, it's so thematically it seems to kind of fit with the situation that we're all in as we are I suppose emerging from lockdown tentatively so Mm -hmm. it's about someone who's tentatively embarking on a new relationship having been hurt in the past and and reached the point where they think they're recovered or wanting to move forward but being that little bit cautious about it and I think that's um, Mm -hmm. a nice metaphor for what it has been like for people with their various concerns about um, restrictions lifting after COVID-19. Mm. So it, it fits and chimes nicely with that sort of situation. Um, I really don't know an awful lot about them. They're quite a new discovery for me. Um, they seem like the sort of band that we will end up seeing at something, at a festival or... They, they were on my Spotify songs I liked in 2020 playlist, I found out after... After I'd said... Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Not, not that song, but, um, um, yeah. that band. Um, mm. And it was one of my... Uh, Oh, I must investigate that further things, yeah. and I never did, because I'm lazy. Yeah, I think <laughs> people that you want to see somewhere in a, a sunny field in Kent, you know, maybe as the sun is kind of setting for the evening, I think. Yeah, um, that sounds good. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see them live and see kind of how they recreate that sound in, yeah. in a live situation and what the interplay is between the vocals and the guitars on that as well. So yeah, I'm really interested to find out some more about them. I hope you mm. get to see them. Soft skin in the bed we're in for me Finally, in at number 10, we've got Two Fingers by Sea Power. So Sea yeah. Power, who are almost inevitably referred to as the band that used to be the British Sea Power. Yeah. <laughs> um, parenthesis. Parenthesis. <laughs> I, I, I've long had this 
thing about how I love bands whose initials are made of B, S and P. So you've got British Sea Power, the Pet Public Shop Service Boys, Public Service Broadcasting, and I think, oh, and uh, Sweet Billy Pilgrim. <laughs> and so Sea uh, Power have kind of ruined that by losing the the B Isn't from the their name. I'm not yeah. quite sure I can like them anymore because it's just not fitting <laughs> with the initial thing. What, what do you what do you think about them losing their their Britishness? Um, I completely understand that. I've, I've read a few articles where they talk about it, um, and they're very very clear in their thinking and in their explanation that mm. it's it was the combination of British and poor that they were yeah. wanting to avoid. Mm. Um, and I I can see that. Um, so yeah, it shows a sensitivity from them, and not necessarily a sensitivity, but I think also an awareness that the wrong sorts of people could misinterpret the name of the band and start following the band because they yeah. think it represents something that it doesn't. I think they understand that their own fans are fair enough to work out that there is a wry humour in what they're doing. Yeah. And that the whole point was so they could have that marvellous album title. The decline. The decline of far, you know? um, and that they were <laughs> yeah. always, you know, they were not bigging up Empire or anything like that. They were doing quite the reverse and they were kind of, Mm. making fun of those inflated ideas of British yeah. bars as a whole. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I can I can respect their choice. It doesn't trip off the tongue as nicely. I think we're no. all going to struggle with this for a little while. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I do understand why they've done it. Yeah. Um, and they've given a, a strong defence of it. And then yeah. they coupled that with then the first single that they released under that new um, title being called Two Fingers. <laughs> and so uh, I've got a huge amount of respect for this band. I think they're probably one of the most consistently excellent bands the UK has produced and they've mm. been like over the last 15 years or so just they're slightly below the surface of you know huge popularity and mm. um, they mean an awful lot to us as a family they we take the kids to a music festival called um, Indie Tracks it hasn't happened for the last two years yeah but they were one of the headline acts the first time that we took the kids to the festival that we had been at kind of 10 years previously for before our, our joyful offspring came along. And um, there were the Saturday night headliners. We made it through to Saturday night. We'd contained the kids at this festival site. And when they perform, they have people in costumes on stage with them, dancing around. So they have yeah. people dressed up as bears. And then the bears had come off stage and they were wandering through the audience and people were dancing with the bears. And uh, Patrick must have been maybe seven at the time. And he had given up. It was approaching 10 o'clock on the Saturday <laughs> night. Up and he was curled up asleep at our feet as we were standing a little way back kind of dancing and one yeah. of the bears came over and started dancing and almost stood in his head and we went no don't there's a child down there and then the bear in full costume went oh my god I'm so sorry <laughs> I was just the most polite bear that you had ever met and was very apologetic about uh, nearly nearly standing on our child's head but the brilliant thing was we went back to the campsite after they'd finished and it the, the, really didn't end late I think 10 o'clock was the, the cutoff yeah. point so it's really kind of family friendly went back to the tent put the children to bed and Patrick didn't wake up until midday the next day, and he has never slept for so long in his life. And we got up and was like, oh, we can kind of, we, we can do things. <laughs> We've got this free time. Um, so obviously what we did was open some wine and some peanuts and, and um, have that for breakfast. But um, yeah, no one has ever knocked him out quite like that. And he's a huge fan. <laughs> um, and so he's got his own little playlist that he'll listen to at bedtime. So he's got some of their songs on there. He also has... a a lot of public service broadcasting tracks on there so he is also a fan of those uh, interchangeable mm. initials but I think yeah it's just 
I'm always going to associate them with the whole family going to see them and having that really lovely memory and uh, you know remembering if we ever we've seen yeah. them so many times yeah though. we've seen them a lot of times over kind of 15 years yeah um and I, I've always been a huge um, fan of just the sound, the sonics of it, the, the dynamics of it, and particularly the guitar sounds, which I've yeah. attempted to copy on numerous occasions myself, yeah. Yeah. with uh, these guilty men. Um, yeah. But um, as someone who's been in an ironically named band where no one appreciated the irony, <laughs> um, I, I can appreciate the need to deviate from your irony if people don't appreciate that it is irony yeah <laughs> um i always understood it implicitly um yeah 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 i was i was thinking about um stuart turner and the flat earth society and, and conversations we've had in the past about the uh, issues you've had with constantly, the name constantly lately it was yeah yeah um particularly in the trump years um mm. the, social media baiting by American anti-fascists who there's only just so many times you can say I'm on your side I <laughs> I, I, I completely concur <laughs> it's a joke it was supposed yeah. to be yeah anyway. yeah Oh dear. So I understand exactly where they're at. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're fantastic, fantastic band. Mm. Self-aware, culturally aware, historically aware. But you, yeah. you couldn't write a song like Waving Flags. Um, but even that, if you're... If, if you, you want to interpret if it all, you want, way, if all you want to do is listen to a, a song title and a band title and then ignore all the words, then I guess... <laughs> um, then waving yeah. flags like British sea power might be seen in. Yeah. Well, people frequently do. You know, this is not what you want to hear as a songwriter, but loads of people don't actually listen to the words of, of what he's playing, do they? Mm. You know, no, that's true. Interpretations of things. Yeah, the, I think they're the band I've seen the most. I by no means am I the most uh, prolific gig goer, but I think yeah, I've seen them the most of any any band or artist I've seen live. And seeing them, I saw them at Glastonbury in the Avalon stage, the, the little really small tent type thing. And it did feel like a religious experience watching them. It's like just, you could feel the music and it was just yeah, like, you can just, wow. you can just let it wash over you, can't you? Or you can, you can be as in it as, as you need to be. Yeah, they're mm. wonderfully entertaining and I'd say just so consistent all the way through in the output and the live performances. Certainly people that we will always make an effort to see if we can do, even if that means dragging to a former public toilet in Tunbridge Wells. Um, that's what we will do. <laughs> the, we saw them play at the High Rocks, also in Tunbridge also Wells, Tunbridge Wells yeah. Yeah. Um, where our friends were DJing um, in between bands. And uh, they came on, they were utterly professional and they weren't talking between songs. It was all very slick, very polished. And they decorated the stage with branches they'd stolen from the local woodland. <laughs> they had their stuffed owl pants on the amp, and all the illusion of professional distance was there. And about three songs in, the drummer put a stick right through the middle of the snare. Has anyone got a spare snare drum we can borrow? <laughs> and uh, someone ran in from the audience from one of the support bands and offered up a, a snare drum. <laughs> wow. Um, Brilliant. Fun. 
Let's listen then uh, to the the final choice from Moira, which is uh, Two Fingers by Sea Power. So there you have it, 10 songs in the key of Moira Mahaffey. I hope you enjoyed them. I know I definitely did. And it's been a fantastic opportunity to reintroduce myself to Duke Special, who I'll no doubt be listening to a lot more over the next few days. I'll be back sooner or later with songs in the key of something or someone or other else very soon. In the meantime, have a marvellous few days and nights till we meet again. Two fingers for the living, two fingers for the living.